Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. So last Sunday evening, if you were here for either of our two Advent services, you know that um, the title and kind of theme of the Advent service and what we've talked about is kind of the theme of the season is to hold on to the promise. The title of the Advent service was The Promise. And this phrase from one of Andrew Peterson's songs has really been resonating deep in my heart. This is from his song, All Things New. He says, hold on to the promise. The stories are true that Jesus makes all things new. And I bring that up because as we come to this well-known story about Jesus being with his disciples in a boat, there being a storm, him calming the storm, as Alex just read, um, it is so mission critical for us to know that this story actually happened. This isn't a fairy tale or a legend. And scholars point this out routinely, that as Mark writes this, and this is similar for all the gospel accounts, Every time they tell these stories, even in Mark, which he's so succinct and he doesn't give a lot of extra details, he includes all these unnecessary and even what we could consider irrelevant details. Details that don't necessarily um, push the plot forward. The fact that we know what Jesus was wearing, that we know where in the boat he was sleeping, that he was sleeping on a cushion. Who else was with the disciples um, as they went out across the sea? Even skeptics that don't believe in Christianity will point out that this has all the markings of an eyewitness account, because it is an eyewitness account. Peter himself, who we many believe it was his firsthand reporting that led to Mark's writing of his gospel, told the church this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the reason that's so important is Paul reminds the church in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, notice two points that Paul makes in that passage. First, in order for the scriptures to give us hope, we must know and believe that they're actually true that they really happen. This is pretty common sense. When you are experiencing a dark night of the soul, a period of profound suffering, if you have been looking at the scriptures as just encouraging moral fairy tales, they are going to provide no lasting comfort when you're really struggling. And then notice what Paul says. He says that what was written was not just for our instruction, but rather through our instruction, these stories are meant to give us endurance that actually leads to hope which raises the natural question, what do we need to endure? The inevitable storms that come from living in a fallen and broken world. We say this on a regular basis. There is nothing more inevitable in life in a fallen and broken world than suffering or storms in light of this story. Tim Keller says it so clearly in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. No matter what precautions you take, No matter how well we put together a good life, no matter how hard you work to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, successful with your career, something will inevitably ruin it. There's no amount of money, power, planning that can prevent bereavement, dire illness, 
relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile. It is subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. And in light of that, God's word is meant to be such an anchor for our soul. And that is why there's arguably nothing more important in the Christian life than feeding yourself daily, both personally and corporately, on the word of God. If you wait until you experience the valley of the shadow of death to run to God's word and you haven't already fed yourself a steady diet, you're going to find yourself in trouble. But if you regularly feed and nourish your soul on the truths of God's word, by his spirit, he can supernaturally encourage and strengthen our hearts so that we can endure Our worldview needs to be shaped not by our circumstances or how we interpret them or what our culture tells us about them, but rather by what God's word says to be true. Now, we know as we see this story playing out before us that the knee-jerk response of our hearts, even if we read and study God's word and feed ourselves on it regularly, when we experience unexpected suffering, Legitimate, terrifying suffering, much like the disciples, our knee-jerk reaction is to accuse God of not caring. Remember, these disciples had already seen Jesus do many impossible things. He had healed people from demon possession, cured lepers, healed a paralyzed man. But now that their lives are actually on the line, that they are afraid that they're going to die, they begin to freak out. Now, Just to be fair, Jesus led them into a terrifying situation. He intentionally told them to get in that boat and go out on that sea. And this storm arises, and that was pretty common. On the Sea of Galilee, commentators point out that it's 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by mountain ranges that send cold air down into a warm pocket by the lake, and this can produce massive, powerful storms. We know that several of the disciples were seasoned fishermen, so they weren't misinterpreting the situation When they asked Jesus, do you not care that we are going to die in this storm? It is really as bad as they thought. When I was growing up, my dad was an avid outdoorsman. He loved, with any moment of free time, to hunt and to fish. And he would take my two brothers and myself, along with his best friend and his two sons, deep sea fishing on a regular basis. And if you've ever been, it's pretty incredible. We would, you know, get up really early in the morning when it's dark, get in the boat, and, you know, you ride for hours so you, you're, there's no land anywhere in sight. And then um, typically in the five or six previous trips, you know, we would catch fish all day and it was amazing. You know, king mackerel and marlin, you come back and you have these great stories you tell for the rest of the year. But one of the last times we ever went deep sea fishing with my dad, we got caught in a terrible storm with waves that were crashing over the boat and it, it became dark all of a sudden. And I remember I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old and looking at the captain and seeing the panic in his face, and then seeing my dad grab my little brother and grab the side railing, and and just the look in his eyes as the one who I always looked to to protect me. I mean, it was utterly terrifying. And I texted my two brothers yesterday and said, hey, do y'all remember that story about us going out deep sea fishing with the storm? And what do y'all remember? And my older brother texted me this morning. He's like, oh man, I remember. It was over eight foot waves crashing in, and and I remember dad turning to Captain Mack and yelling, we're gonna die. I was like, well, I don't remember that. I'm kind of (laughs) glad. That would not have helped. (laughs) That would have not have helped in the moment. The disciples are terrified, convinced they are going to die. And here's Jesus. 
the one that loves them, the one that clearly has supernatural power, the one who has used that power routinely to help others, and he's sleeping, seemingly oblivious and unconcerned with their current situation. And so it's not surprising in verse 38 that they wake him up and most likely scream to him, teacher, do you not care at all that we are perishing? I bring this up regularly when we read the Gospels. It is so easy most of the time when we hear stories about the disciples and their lack of faith to think, what a bunch of idiots, right? I would never do that if I was there and I was with Jesus, and, which is not true in any situation. But I don't think we struggle with that feeling this morning. I think if we're honest, we realize, wow, I can relate to them completely. Every time I experience a storm in my life, every time my dreams are shattered and I find myself in deep suffering, my heart cries out, God, do you even care? Do you care that my marriage is falling apart? Do you care that I'm still not married? Do you care that we had another miscarriage? Do you care that we can't get pregnant? Do you care that my child is suffering? Do you care that I have cancer? Do you care that we can't pay the bills? Do you care? Fill in the blank. Now, one thing I want us to actually notice, and I hope, I was telling the, the team before, I'm like, I don't want this in any way. This feels like an important point to make, and I don't want it to feel like an academic, theological, doctrinal point, especially for those of you who are really struggling currently. But I do want us um, to actually take notice that every time we cry out, God, this isn't right, this shouldn't be happening, do you not care, our hearts are telling us something true. Even people that claim to not believe in God, that claim to hate God, when they regularly do this, their consciences are telling them something real. Their consciences are telling them when they scream out, this isn't right, this isn't fair, this isn't just, you're created for a world where storms don't exist where disease, death, decay, and suffering have no place. And we see this all the time, if you just pay attention. So even a month ago, Megan Rapino, who plays um, soccer for Team USA or whatever, professional women's soccer player, in her final game of her career, and she's had a long, illustrious career, Olympics and all that, um, she tears her Achilles. And she's a well-known, like, atheist, kind of bashes Christianity, has never claimed faith at all. And in her press conference afterwards, you may have seen this, she says, I'm not a religious person or anything, and if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. Now, when this happened a month ago, all the Christians, ah, I can't stand her, let's tear her apart. (laughs) And I think often in the church, we find ourselves like, oh, my gosh, I need to, like, defend God to people that say things like that, Right? And remember, C.S. Spurgeon says, you don't defend a lion, you just open the cage and let it out. But my apologetics professor in seminary, um, Mike Kruger, was phenomenal, and he would say, you need to just understand, every person in the world lives on borrowed Christian capital. In other words, the question really for Megan is, what in your worldview would lead you to think that this isn't right or fair? Much less that it's God's fault, or this is proof that God doesn't exist. What in nature tells you that people don't tear their Achilles or get injured or experience failure, death, disease, decay, all these awful things? What she was doing in that moment when she cried out, this isn't right, and she went on with a lot of expletives to say how, you know, effed up this is and everything, blah, 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 blah. And and, and I would love to sit with her and say, yeah, you're right, because you were created to live in a world where people don't get injured, right? So... 
every time we cry out, this isn't right, our hearts are telling us something true. Now, notice how Jesus responds to his disciples' question, do you not even care about what's going on? He gives both a revelation and then a question back to them. First, the revelation. Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea. He said, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, to understand what happened here, we need to focus on the phrase, there was a great or complete calm. There's no details about Jesus standing up and turning into Gandalf and doing some magic incantation and waiting to see if it works, or Harry Potter and hope he got it right. He just literally wakes up, speaks, and the moment the words come out of his mouth, boom, the storm is no more. The storm literally ceased to exist the moment that Jesus spoke, hence the follow-up question from the disciples, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's not a very good translation. My assumption is in the boat. They were like, what in the heck just happened? Oh, my gosh. We have radically underestimated what we thought was true about our rabbi. The answer, of course, to their rhetorical question was obvious. Jesus isn't just a powerful teacher. He isn't just a prophet who teaches in a way different from every other prophet. No, sitting in the boat with us right now is literally power itself. Jesus is God in human form. A physically exhausted man and the omnipotent ruler of all creation at the very same time. In other words, what we celebrate every year at Christmas, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. In light of this revelation, it's time now for Jesus to ask his friends, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now I like, I want to read the way Luke records this from his eyewitness accounts. Because I think that Peter, because of his personality and everything else we pick up on in the scriptures, tends to be so harsh. And so I, I imagine Peter reflecting on this experience with a more succinct and even harsh rebuke from Jesus. In Luke's account, Jesus says to them, where's your faith? And then they were so afraid, they marveled, they said to one another, who then is this that even commands wind and water and they obey him? Well, the obvious answer to their question is their faith wasn't fully or truly resting in Jesus. And all the catechisms that we study, you know, they'll ask the question, what is true faith? And they'll use words like wholehearted trust to both receive and to rest fully in who Jesus is and not in yourself. The disciples would have said before this storm, oh yeah, we're all in. They would have taken all the membership vows and said, yes, 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 all day long. But then, in the moment of trial and suffering, in the heat of the moment, they became terrified and then quickly concluded that Jesus must not care. Now, I think if any of us are honest, we can relate. This same thing, this same dynamic pops up in my heart all the time. And it doesn't just have to be major times, like when I experience the death of a loved one. It doesn't even have to be in heavy, weighty matters when Stephanie and I are sitting in a meeting with teachers or therapists or doctors and hearing more bad news about Mary Rachel's future. I mean, I've got plantar fasciitis right now that is frustrating me. I can still get around fine, but I complain and pout. I'm like, God, if you really cared, why won't you just fix this so I can work out and whatever. I'm not asking for a lot, just that. So effortlessly I go there. If you really cared, and notice what we don't do is we don't question God's power. 
We just question his goodness. We don't say, well, Jesus, thank you so much for loving me. I'm so sorry that you're too weak and pathetic to do anything about it. We immediately go to, why aren't you doing something? I'm struggling to trust that you actually really care. But notice the underlying premise of my heart. It is very simply, if you love me, you'll remove all storms from my life. I don't know if we can more succinctly summarize an American view, the American dream version of a false gospel than that. We sadly so much want to believe that God's love for us requires him to remove suffering from our life. And we help him, right? We numb ourselves. We try to avoid any form of suffering pain like the plague. And as a result, we're often completely scandalized when suffering enters our life. And God's word from beginning to end shows that this entire premise is wrong. The question we should actually consider is what if God's love for us actually requires that he allows things that he hates in order to accomplish what he loves? If he willingly allows storms in our lives not because he enjoys our suffering, but because he knows that we need them in order to grow and mature in our faith and our trust in him. This is actually what the Bible teaches. Notice what Jesus' brother James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or storms of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, it turns out that Jesus taught and modeled that faithful suffering is a prerequisite for spiritual maturity. And that's why Jesus says, if you're going to belong to him and be his disciples, you need to understand this from the very beginning. Mark 8, verse 34, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up an instrument of death and follow me. This is what made the realization that Jesus was actually God so utterly terrifying to his disciples. Notice verse 41. After Jesus calms the storm, it says that the disciples were filled with great fear. And then they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? If you're just reading the narrative, that's kind of a surprising statement for them to make. They're panicking. They're freaking out. They know Jesus has power. They wake him up. He does what they want him to do. He calms the storm. What do you expect them to do? One of my favorite movies from growing up is Friday. And in the movie Friday, there's this dude, Debo, who's like the neighborhood bully. And every time he comes bebopping around on his bike, everybody starts to panic. And so Smokey and Craig are always afraid of Debo because he steals their chains and he bullies them. But at the very end of the movie, when Craig stands up to the bully Debo and beats him up, Smokey starts dancing around. That's my dog. You got a problem with me. Talk to him. That's what you expect the disciples to do. Oh, man, Jesus has got this. He's got the power. We're his best friends. We just found our ticket. This is it. This is the greatest insurance policy we could ever have received. But instead, the text says that they are more terrified after the storm ceases than they were before. See, if Jesus is God with skin on, that meant that the living God was more wild and unpredictable than they'd ever dared to imagine. Not only had he come to earth as a human, but he intentionally led those he loved into a life-threatening storm 
and he was going to keep doing it. This is what makes God so unsettling. He's the one force in the universe that we have absolutely no hope of controlling. And he's so committed to our maturity that he's not going to allow us to skip over suffering until it does its work of bringing us to a more mature faith. C.S. Lewis articulates it this way. The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe there's any use in begging him for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy, but suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he'll go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties to stop the storm, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. See, the best way for God to mature our hearts is not to shield us from suffering, but rather to intentionally allow us to experience suffering so that the object of our faith can be exposed. Again, Peter says this, and this is a passage we often read and even preach off of at Easter that can feel kind of, I don't know, interesting because Easter feels like such a joyful, happy time and talking about Jesus' resurrection and our inheritance. But notice what he says in the second half of this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus explained two weeks ago in the parable of the sower. He said that there are those where the seed of God's word is sown on rocky ground, and they hear it, and immediately they receive it with joy. And you think, this is great. It's going to produce a harvest. But he says they really have no deep root. They endure for a little while, but then when storms come, they immediately fall away. In essence, what Jesus is saying in the boat when he wakes up to his disciples is, if you guys understood how much I really loved you, even in the midst of this terrifying, life-threatening storm, you would have been able to have calm and restful hearts. Now, we read that and naturally say, how is that even possible? Maybe I can assent and bob my head, but if I think back to times in my life when I was truly terrified, in the valley of the shadow of death, I hopefully have the honesty to say, that's just not me. How can Jesus begin to make that claim? Well, the crazy reality is we have a greater resource right now today in this room than the disciples did in that boat. See, it's easy to think, gosh, you know, they saw Jesus, they witnessed his miracles, they spent time with him, and boy, if they couldn't trust at that level, I've got no shot. But the crazy reality is we do. See, Mark deliberately laid out this account using language that not only parallels, but is almost identical to another Old Testament story, the story of Jonah. 
And if you think about all the seemingly unnecessary and irrelevant details, you'll remember that both Jonah and Jesus were on a boat. They were on a boat asleep during the midst of a great storm. And in both stories, the sailors that were seasoned veterans experiencing that storm expected fully to die. They both woke up, Jonah and Jesus, and said, what are you doing? How can you sleep? Do you not care that we are going to die? And in both stories, a miraculous intervention took place to completely calm the storm. Now, you may be thinking, okay, but there's one major difference. In the narrative of Jonah, he told the sailors, the only way for you to survive is you have to throw me headfirst into the storm so that you can live. That doesn't happen in our story, or does it? Remember, we're meant to read Scripture through the lens of all of God's redemptive story. Jesus himself said that one who is greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus claimed to be the true Jonah. Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So as Tim Keller explains in light of that, he says, what Jesus meant was someday I'm going to calm all storms and still all waves. I'm going to, to destroy destruction and break brokenness and kill death. How can he do that? He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly like Jonah until the ultimate storm under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. But the major difference is when Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath, the only storm that could truly sink us for all eternity, that storm was not silenced. The full measure of that storm was poured out on our Savior on the cross so that we can know, regardless of the storms that we experience, they will not ultimately sink us. Even if the storms we currently experience lead to our physical death sooner than expected, Jesus says in, Matthew, in, in John 11 at the death of his friend Lazarus, even if you physically die, if you belong to me, you will live forever. And you'll live forever in a place where storms and suffering and disease, death and decay do not exist. Now to the degree that we as his people believe that truth deep in our hearts, we will at least be a little bit slower we won't stop completely, but we'll be a little bit slower to say you must not care. Maybe we'll be a little bit more courageous to tell other friends and community, I'm struggling to believe he cares. Can you pray for me? Can you remind me to hold on to the promise the stories are actually true? Jesus is going to make all things new. He who promised us, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can fear no evil, for he is with me. His rod and his staff will always comfort me. In Hebrews, the author reminds us that God promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. See, the reality is in my own life, that storm going deep sea fishing wasn't nearly as scary as waking up that morning when I was in the eighth grade and realizing that my dad had died. The person who I expected to take care of me and provide for me and always be there for me was now gone was a thousand times more terrifying than anything I experienced out in the sea. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave, we can have an anchor for our soul even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death when the storm 
feels overwhelming. Now, here's the final point I want to make, and please, please, please hear this. There, one of the ways Satan will seek to get a foothold in your heart and your mind when you're suffering and you're struggling and you're questioning is by saying, you should be a better Christian. You shouldn't question. And so you may be tempted to leave here today and say, I got to do better. I got to try harder. I got to really white knuckle myself into being disciplined to believe when I'm really, really afraid. And newsflash, that doesn't work. You can't shame or guilt yourself into heart change. The only thing that can change your heart is love. Love so amazing, so divine. I'm reading this book that God is using to remind me of this called Try Softer. And the whole premise of the book is this Christian counselor is arguing how it's the different um, approach to life than try harder. Just suck it up and get it done, which has sadly been the mantra of my heart and life for almost 30 years. She says this, trying softer isn't about knowing or doing the right thing. It's about being gentle with ourselves in the face of pain that is keeping us stuck. Because no matter how hard we try, we can't hate or shame ourselves into change. Only love can move us toward growth. This is the love given to us by a gentle, kind, compassionate, and good God. We don't have to keep living from a narrative of self-hate when God looks at us tenderly, waiting for us to move toward his fiercely gentle love. I want to invite you to see yourself as one who is gloriously loved and deserving of kindness and compassion. Every person struggles in some measure with the internal voice that tells them they are not who God calls them to be. And yet again and again and again and again and again and again, he'll never stop again longing lovingly to meet us to remind you and to remind me that we are the very ones that he came to save. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will help our hearts to be completely blown away by your love for us. Even though we can't control you and we don't often understand your ways, help us to trust more than anything else that you're good and that you're for us. And we know that's true because of the cross and your resurrection. So help us, help us, Lord, together as your people to hold on to the promise for the stories are true that Jesus, you will make all things new. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.